Hello, and welcome to A Dash of Salt. I'm Dr. Shelley Ann, and I'm so glad you're here. Whether you stumbled upon this podcast by accident or you're here because the subject drew you in, welcome. SALT is an acronym for Society and Learning Today. This podcast was created as an outlet for inviting fresh discussions on sociology and learning theories that impact your world. Each episode includes a wide range of themes that focus on society and everyday learning, whether formal or informal. So let's get stuck in, shall we? Welcome to A Dash of Salt. Today, I'm joined by Dr. Vivian Rath. Vivian Rath is a teaching fellow in Trinity College, Dublin, and recently completed his PhD on the social engagement experiences of disabled students in higher education in Ireland. He obtained his master's in management from Smurfit Business School, where he researched the employment of graduates with disabilities. He's also a member of the Irish Human Rights and Equality Commission Disability Advisory Committee. This committee has a role in the monitoring of the implementation of the United Nations Conventions on the Rights of Persons with Disabilities. He has extensive experience providing supports to people with disabilities accessing education and employment opportunities. As a person with a disability, Vivian has been a disability activist for many years, campaigning for greater participation of people with disabilities in public and political life. He's currently working for AHEAD as a project research officer investigating reasonable accommodations in professional placement, or RAPP, RAP. I'm delighted to have you on the podcast to speak with you about some of the findings from your research and about the importance of voice in school and community. Welcome, Vivian. Thank you very much, Shelley, and I'm absolutely delighted to be here with you uh, to discuss this important topic and, of course, to have my voice heard. Absolutely. I'd like you to tell us a little bit about yourself and about your program of research. Okay, uh, well, I mean, that um, I've just completed my PhD research on the social engagement experiences of disabled students in higher education in Ireland. Uh, that, uh, and I'm a, a lecturer in disability and disability rights in Trinity College, Dublin. Uh, but my interest in this topic uh, goes back a, a very long way. And in actual fact, I suppose to give some context and background uh, that goes back to my time uh, when I was in higher education uh, in Ireland. And that um, I, when I went to college to study pharmacology, uh, I didn't know at the time that I was actually among less than 1% uh, of the total student population with a disability. Um, so it can be, you know, I did, I felt a little bit alone. I, you know, I actually felt disabled. Um, uh, but, and it was, it can be more challenging, I think, uh, for a person when you are very much in the minority and you don't see anybody similar to you in that uh, environment. Um, but in, in fact, that all changed for me when I, uh, in second year in college, uh, when I lived on campus uh, with my brother, uh, Paddy, and another disabled person uh, who was visually impaired. And we all lived together in a, in a house on, on campus. Uh, we went on actually then to uh, establish a student society uh, in the college called the Inclusion, Participation and Awareness Society. 
And the thing about that was that I, during that time, I got to know other people living on campus, both people with disabilities and without, and we formed a community. And although there were many barriers uh, to my full engagement with the college, uh, including, you know, inaccessible buildings, uh, bad attitudes, uh, but also my, my, my chronic illness as well, those barriers didn't seem to matter as much because I had a community around me and I felt like I belonged. Um, but, but after that, I went on to represent uh, the student body as the vice president for the students' union uh, and uh, that uh, we should set up a wheelchair basketball team. But I then went on to do a master's in uh, management and I focused on employment of graduates with disabilities. What I found during that research was that uh, graduates were finding it difficult uh, to gain uh, jobs because they didn't have those extracurricular activities on their CV. And so when they went into interview, they didn't have those extra items to talk about. Um, and those students or those graduates reported back to me that those were the barriers and the employers were always also noticing that these were uh, missing from their CV. So uh, after that, I, I worked in the University College Dublin for a couple of years in the area of uh, student transitions and uh, the Office of the Vice President for Students. Um, and I realized, you know, that I really wanted to investigate this, that I really wanted to identify what were the barriers and the enablers uh, to the social engagement of disabled students in higher education. Uh, and so I decided to do my PhD in Trinity College, Dublin. Uh, and that's, that's where my, my journey has brought me to here at this point. And did you find it hard um, as a, a, a student or, or as a person with disability yourself um, to separate yourself? Because I know this was not an eth ethnography uh, uh, per se, this research. Was it hard for you to set yourself aside and, and have sort of an unbiased um, look at your research? Or, or what were the types of things that you did to make sure that your research wasn't biased? That's a really, really important question. And in actual fact, Shelley, that is why I tell the story of my own background first, because I think it's the first thing you must do is you must look at yourself and look at your positionality uh, and to engage with that and to reflect upon your past and to reflect on where you are now as well. Uh, so as I can, as you can see there straight away, reflection was a really important part. Engaging in, in identifying your positionality, really important part. And I engaged in that process throughout my PhD uh, to ensure that there wasn't that bias. Uh, and that it, we have to accept that it is very, very difficult in a qualitative study to take the researcher out of the research. So I think the most important step straight away is to call it out, to acknowledge it, uh, to really question yourself and question your position. And do you know what? That can actually be really difficult uh, and quite challenging. And I was very lucky that I had a great supervisor who was prepared to talk to me about it. But also then I had other disabled researchers in the college. Um, that I could rely on uh, and trust uh, to talk about those issues, to tease them out. And I think one of the ones uh, that 
initially created uh, a challenge for me was uh, the idea, yeah, or was I a person with a disability or was I a disabled person? Mm-hmm. And that in itself, uh, if actually, I, I would say I transformed or I evolved over the PhD journey from calling myself a person with a disability. So, you know, person first to actually describing myself as a disabled person. Because by the end, you know, or I'd say at some point in the research, I saw myself working uh, for transformational change with my research participants. And, and of course, one of the key aspects of my research uh, is that I used a, a combination of uh, the transformative paradigm uh, and uh, that uh, uh, the bioecological model. Uh, and the key with those uh, is, number one is that firstly, it puts the student at the center of the research. And but what you're actually doing is you're working with your participants for transformational change uh, by using a social justice approach. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that that furtherance of human rights is what it was really, really, really important to me uh, during my research journey. And that's actually a, a, an amazing response. Um, as you know, you, you and I, um, with our even though our research was very, very different, we always talked about sort of um, the the uh, uh, the twinning or the identifying factors that we both had um, that we were doing the same. And and I also, you know, my my research had to be highly reflective as well, uh, and I had to bring my positionality into my research because it was about volunteering and and things that I had been so involved in and. And, how, and what I had to consistently do to take myself out of my research um, to look back into um, the participants in, in, the, in my research because I was so involved um, and so passionate about um, volunteering and that kind of thing. So I know that's one of the things that we, we said that we'd have those crossovers together um, with our research. But um, the other thing that I thought was really important that you said was that, that idea of um, making transformational change so, so what you're doing in your research was listening to the voice of your participants and listening to the voices of these students and then working towards transformational uh, change um, by doing it. So, it, so that whole act of, you know, what is student voice and then actually um, making those changes at the same time is a really important piece of that. Um, how would you explain um, to the listeners, to somebody who maybe doesn't, is in the academic or in the university community. How how would you explain what student voice is and why it's so important? Shelley, as you know, I like to keep things simple. Uh, and I would like to think that, you know, student voice is an expression of the, the, the student uh, and those expressing their opinions and their views. Uh, and, I, and of course, it is, I think it's very important that with that voice, there will be differences in views and differences opinions. And of course, critical to all of that is that that voice is heard. And that uh, I really feel that that was one important aspect of my research uh, was that ensuring that the student uh, was at the center of the research and had the opportunity to have their voice heard. Uh, and of course, another important aspect was I'm a disabled person. You're, you're, 
listeners probably don't know that. I have a physical disability myself. Uh, I've been a disability rights activist for many, many, many years. Uh, and so I could empathize with a lot of the barriers, but also a lot of the barriers to having your voice heard. Um, and a key thing that your listeners wouldn't may not realize is that disabled people have actually been researched, sorry, researched more than being researchers. So it, it was very significant that a disabled person would be the researcher in this. And that in itself is actually what makes this research uh, somewhat unique in terms of that uh, this there hasn't been research done in Ireland on the social engagement experiences of disabled students. And um, because, to be honest, uh, disabled students in higher education is a res relatively new phenomenon. Uh, and that's that's number one. Number two is that there has been a real focus uh, on just getting disabled students into higher education uh, and focusing on their academic needs. And then let's just get them out rather than focusing on that wider holistic student experience, mm -hmm. uh, that opportunity to socially engage with the wider community, to meet friends, have a coffee, um, play football, be on the team, be the leader of the team, be the leader of the students' union, mm -hmm. um, or simply to just have your voice heard in class. And I think it's really important that we... Remember that there are all, I, I would feel that there are all different levels of having your voice heard or different ways of having your voice heard, but none of them are any more or less important. So if, if like, I mean, I, I would often hear of disabled people talking about uh, that if they, so we'll take a, a disabled person who maybe was out with for a cup of tea and they had a personal assistant with them and that uh, somebody would ask the personal assistant, how many sugars does the disabled person want? As opposed to asking the disabled person. Mm -hmm. And so that is not having your voice heard there is just as disempowering mm -hmm. as having your voice not heard on not being elected for a big office. Yeah, uh, and taking so, their agency away from them. Absolutely right. Uh, that, that, uh, totally right. Totally right. Yeah. Um, so I actually would love to hear, and I think the listeners would be very interested in hearing about some of the experiences of the students in your research uh, and maybe some of their struggles to be heard and, and the kinds of impacts that it, had, that it has on them. Yeah, well, some of the, the main findings around my research, uh, around it, around social engagement, uh, came around a number of themes. So, for instance, the four themes were around engagement. Uh, there was college climate transitions and structures, uh, and within them, then within those themes, then there was a range of information around, say, for instance, student belonging. And there was a real connection there uh, between social engagement, having your voice heard and belonging. And in actual fact that uh, the majority of the participants, uh, both students uh, and staff, because there was staff also involved in my study. In actual fact, uh, the senior managers in the college uh, were, were involved in the study, which again was unique uh, to, to my research. Uh, and also uh, the disability support person 
So those would have been the people who would have supported the students in the front line. And why I took that approach was, which is really a systematic approach, was in terms of I looked at the whole system and the different layers out from the students uh, following uh, Brown from Brenner's bioecological uh, model. And so within that, then it was seen that uh, disabled students, although they felt they were socially engaged, almost all of them reported barriers to their social engagement. And those barriers included lack of awareness, uh, structural barriers still continue to be a problem. Um, and I think one you know, short story, which I think encapsulates so much that was it was a student called Mary. And uh, she had just transitioned uh, to her college and was attending probably her fourth lecture, I think it was. And but it was a late evening lecture and she was sitting at the back of the class in a kind of a little cubicle that exists at some in some lectures where disabled wheelchair users are actually kind of cordoned off in an area on their own. And she said she was up there on her own and the class went on and that was fine. But at the end of the class, a number of students came up and introduced themselves and said hello and decided they all decided they would go for a coffee. But it turned out that there was no coffee bars open uh, in that building. And so they had to traipse across the entire campus to get to the student building. Uh, and when they finally reached it, uh, which, you know, took some time and was quite exhausting uh, for the student, they went in and they, they realized that the coffee dock was upstairs. The elevator didn't work. So the students uh, was like, look, it's fine. We won't bother. Uh, and she was like, no, no, look, go for coffee. It's fine. Don't worry about it. And so eventually, after much persuasion, they did go for coffee. Uh, and she said that that really was the point. But she just felt, you know, she didn't belong. Mm -hmm. And that... Uh, what made that worse, though, was she reported that incident to student services. And four weeks later, that elevator still wasn't fixed. So there was a combination of factors there that came together to really uh, firstly make that student feel like that it didn't belong, but then disempowered that student as well by not listening to that student's voice. Mm -hmm. And so that's an example. But in terms of belonging, the majority of students uh, felt that they did belong. Yet, uh, sorry, that they belonged in their college. Yet, students were on disabled students were uncertain about their sense of belonging in class. Mm. Now, that is the very place that senior managers and disability support personnel want students to be confident about their sense of belonging. Mm -hmm. And yet students were uncertain about that. So we have to ask ourselves the question of well, what was happening there. Mm -hmm. And one thing that perhaps we could point to um, is that, that when students were talking about disability awareness in their college and talking about their college climate, which by the way, they felt was a very you know supportive environment and the people cared. But when it came to disability awareness, almost half of disabled students felt their college wasn't disability aware and that their peers 
were less aware than the staff. Interesting. So, yeah, it's very interesting. And I think that's something, you know, that probably needs to be teased out a little bit more. But in terms of voice, um, students, uh, or, sorry, um, senior managers and disability support personnel really felt that voice was, hearing the voice of students was central to creating a sense of belonging. And of yeah. course, we know that students who feel like they belong are more likely to stay in college. They feel greater levels of happiness and contentment. They actually have greater success uh, in their college. Uh, so belonging is very important and voice is important to that. Mm -hmm. Yet, senior managers reported that they were unaware of any disabled students in senior leadership positions in their college. So if the students weren't in senior leadership positions, they most likely weren't on decision-making boards within the college. Now, in Ireland, we have a very important program called the Widening Participation Agenda, uh, which is the aim is to increase the diversity of the campus. And there has been quite a degree of success in terms of disabled students, in terms of that the number of disabled students when I attended college uh, in about 2000 and started college in 2002 was just less than 1%. It is now, you know, it kind of been around a range of 6.57%. So there has been an increase, but yet senior managers were unaware of any disabled students in senior leadership positions. So how can uh, students, disabled students have input to the wider decision-making process of the college if they are not on those decision-making boards? And we have to ask the question, well, why? Mm -hmm. Now, senior managers said, well, actually, you know what? That's the responsibility of the students' union. The students' union felt, well, yes, we do. It's our representatives. And yes, we probably could be doing more, but we're not really sure about what we need to be doing. Now, the reality is that it is the responsibility of everybody. Mm -hmm. And it is the college's responsibility in relation to their committees to ensure that. And what was evident from my research was that there really, there really hadn't been any thought or consideration into what needed to be done to facilitate that and what structures needed to be put in place or what supports. In actual fact, there was no evidence of any structures or supports. And if we consider that then in terms of the wider uh, agenda within Ireland around student engagement, uh, student success, which students actually spoke about a lot. Students spoke about that a lot. Mm -hmm. But And if we talk about it in terms of our national student engagement program, which sets uh, leadership and diversity and representation as, as key pillars, we have to ask ourselves, well, what's going on here? And that actually leads me um, right perfectly into the next question is that that idea of um, the lip service. So often promotion of student voice, especially student voice for students with disabilities um, or disabled students, um, there, you know, that that promotion can come off as very tokenistic and lacking any real substance and um you know, do you see changes happening, um, you know, since you started your research? And if so, what are those? Yes, uh, 
as you know, Shelley, I'm a pretty optimistic person. <laughs> uh, so <laughs> any little change at all, and I, and I will be, you know, think that's very positive. But uh, yes, there are changes uh, taking place. Uh, the, I think probably one of the biggest problems, though, is that those uh, those changes are not right across the board. So they're sporadic. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're usually as a result maybe of one very interested individual uh, who has made changes in their college and, and seen that through. Um, however, there are programs, of course, that uh, which ha- have been implemented across the majority of colleges. And I'm thinking, say, peer mentoring and student amass- ambassador programs. And so they were originally uh, implemented for the student body to support the transition uh, of the students into college and uh, in the general student body. Uh, but what, I, what, I, what was evident from my research was that these have now actually been uh, established specifically as well for disabled students. Uh, now, of course, they were always open to disabled students participate, but colleges have now focused on uh, bringing on board disabled students who act as peer mentors, maybe for other disabled students, or maybe not, which depending on much their choice. Uh, but those programs have been very, very positive. And in my research, I can see lots of evidence of students enjoying those. Now, there was a bit of variability uh, in that, you know, some students really weren't getting a lot out of it. That is the mentors, because I think it's really important that the mentors get as much out of it as the mentees. Mm-hmm. Um, and that uh, I f- because we do have to remember that the mentor is a student too. It's just there might be one year ahead of the students they're me- mentoring. Uh, so I-, I think those programs will be very effective. And I- I'll give you a very short story. I remember uh, I did an interview with a student, uh, a wheelchair user uh, who, and I-, I met her off camp off her campus I met her in in an environment that suited her and that the student was very quiet very timid um was you know we had a great chat but it took a while and uh, that's uh, I you know I, I came away thinking this is you know this is a shy student the student didn't seem to be having that much social engagement but as part of my research, I actually did some site visits uh, to particular colleges. Uh, and that uh, I remember going out to the college uh, that that student was from. And I met this student as a mentor. And I couldn't believe the difference. Mm-hmm. This was like six months later. Mm-hmm. And this student had decided after the interview to enroll in the mentoring program and in that college or what, what they were doing and was inv- and the student was involved in assisting other students transition into college and uh, it, it, the student was so confident uh, and she was showing leadership skills and was enjoying herself and had had friends and fun and it was just it, it was a really great example uh, of a of a program that was working Mm-hmm. Uh, and it was really, from my perspective, it was, it was super. Um, so I think, there, yes, that there are changes been, have been taking place. And I think they are working. And uh, that uh, another, I think, important thing around voice, which came up in my research, was around uh, disability peer groups. 
and uh, that in my research uh, that among disability support personnel and senior managers to an extent, but mostly disability support personnel, you know, there is really uh, polarized views uh, on the importance uh, or effectiveness of disability peer groups and whether they should be supporting them and whether they should be actually encouraging the students to participate in the general student groups. And why should we have these particular disability groups? Was that not a bad thing? Was it a good thing? They, you know, and there was really quite, you know, some people were quite uh, confident in their views that it was a bad thing and we shouldn't have them. And uh, But what was interesting from my perspective was to see that in the colleges where you had disability peer groups, there was greater disability awareness mm-hmm. among the senior managers, among the, dis- uh, the disability support personnel, among the students' union in particular, mm-hmm. because those groups were liaising with them and uh, senior managers would speak you know, of the person, whoever was in charge of that group. Uh, like they were friends, they were, you know, they knew them. Uh, mm-hmm. And so that was that was quite interesting. Now I'm not saying that disability peer groups are the panacea uh, to improving disability awareness in a college, but certainly they are an impro- uh, a contributor uh, to, to doing that. And I think um, why they are important is because they give people an opportunity to share experiences uh, and that I think that's really important in an environment where you're in the minority mm-hmm. and you don't see anybody else and you don't get you don't get to ask that question of are you having that problem too and finding yeah. out yeah and then I'm not the only one then so yeah. I think that's, that's really important um as, as, as in relation to that and it really makes the um, you know, having those types of groups really um, creates an awareness and, 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 it, and it produces this, you know, where, where something would be often just overlooked and unseen, it creates an awareness so that they, then the, those who are unseen become seen. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and I think that's a really important aspect. And that's why I, I did this research on the social engagement experience of disabled students in higher education, because when it came... Uh, you know, in terms of, if I go back to the results, in terms of belonging, you know, what was critical to that was those really small social engagement opportunities, like having that cup of tea, Mm -hmm. like meeting somebody in the corridor. And those were actually the, those were the key points. I always thought, you know, social engagement was something so much bigger. When I started my research, it was like, you know, being involved in, you know, students union, but actual fact, in most of the interviews, it was just like, as long as I have someone to go for a cup of tea with, to share my problems with, uh, to improve my mental health, mm-hmm. th- those were the important things to people. Yeah. And, and social interaction and social relationships need not be any more than just two people. So, you know, you're either an individual by yourself and that's the, you know, from a sociological perspective, that is, you know, the importance, it doesn't have to be about a group or about, Mm. you know, um, uh, large groups or small groups. It can be just an interaction between two people and then it becomes a social, um, you know, uh, awareness and a social uh, relationship. Uh, It just takes two people. 
that's right absolutely um <laughs> and do you know do you know what Shelley what was interesting and just when we're on you know to talking about voice here mm-hmm. much of the re, you know the research and the literature would suggest that disabled students in higher education need to learn to advocate for themselves and have a better understanding of their rights in college the findings in my research actually suggested somewhat differently um, and that from my research it was obvious that students were generally aware of their rights and there was evidence of them actively speaking up for themselves mm-hmm. but disabled students were not having their voice heard and that they found that they were having to advocate much more than the general student body and he just found that tiring mm-hmm. and so that itself is really disempowering for students again who weren't able to have that voice heard and then just just got worn out from having to advocate for small issues like the door the lift isn't working again or I can't access the wheelchair toilet because it's locked again Mm-hmm. So those were the frustrations of disabled students when it comes to having their voice heard and advocating for themselves. Mm-hmm. So what can we do to get educators, schools, government and policymakers to listen? Hey, so I think uh, one aspect which I would start with is the the need to identify disabled students as role models mm-hmm. uh, in leadership positions. So the ones that are, are currently in leadership positions need to be identified as clear role models. Because in my research, it's a case of if you can't see it, you can't be it. Mm-hmm. And disabled students in my research report are being very proud of knowing a disabled student who was in a leadership position. So with students responding that it gave, gave them that feeling, if they could do it, then so could I. Yeah. And this corresponds with the literature as well, which shows the positive success stories can be empowering and may encourage other students to work through the challenging times. So that's the, that's the first thing I, I, I do. But the, the second thing that I'd be recommending is that colleges need to really look at disability proofing their structures within the college. So if, for instance, that you or have a college board of some type that you ensure that uh, you are making sure that the students are offered the supports to be able to engage with that board. So, and that means proactively doing it. Mm-hmm. It doesn't mean waiting until the first meeting. It means actually getting out there and letting them know in advance that yes, if you need a sign language interpreter, we can provide that for you. You don't need to worry. Mm-hmm. Yes. Uh, if you are a student who needs a personal assistant, we can provide that for you. And that needs to be done. And and I think what I found from my research is that within colleges, there wasn't a structure to be able to report that I need these supports. Uh, so, okay, so for if, if it's outside your academic, your core academic, which there was plenty of the disability services were very well known well and good at that. But but outside of that, there wasn't a way of accessing that support. So again, like in the students' union, and the students' union, I think, have a lot of work to do in this regard. 
is actually they need to put in a reporting structure. So a disabled student attending event or attending a society club or meeting or wanting to participate in the elections, uh, that they can actually report, I have a disability and I need some supports. Who, who do I go to and how can I access them? And yeah, it shouldn't was a, be complicated. <laughs> it shouldn't be complicated, but it doesn't exist. Right. It doesn't <laughs> exist. And uh, that's the thing. And Shelley, one thing that was really, uh, was quite, uh, I was taken aback at was the fact that some students reported that, you know, they went to, to join certain clubs and as part of that, they were required to dis declare their disability. But the students didn't feel comfortable declaring their disability to student leaders of these groups because they wondered, well, where does that information go? Mm -hmm. And there needs to be a, a bit of work done around that in terms of reassuring students that that data is going to be handled confidentially. And you see, I suppose the issue is that with student groups, as we know, uh, that the leaders of them move on very quickly. And the whole structure uh, of people that were there can move on very quickly. Mm -hmm. And so your information moves on then to somebody else. Mm -hmm. So there, there, there is some work to be done around that too, because it is acting as a barrier to engagement by some students. Mm -hmm. So, uh, so that's number two. So now I've talked about the, the role models, and uh, number two is the implementation of structures uh, for, for that for people to be able to engage. I think number three is that uh, it was noted uh, during my research by senior managers and disability support personnel that in a competitive equality, diversity, and inclusion agenda within the colleges, the disability can actually fall down the priority list. Uh, with other issues, uh, so for instance, maybe I know in Ireland at the moment, um, gender quotas is, is very significant. Athena Swan, um, yeah. LGBTQ, um, the international students um, involved. And so the result is that disability issues fall down. And that is compounded by the fact that you actually don't have disabled students sitting on those boards, or, which is equally a bigger issue, you don't have disabled staff mm -hmm. because there are so few disabled staff within higher education. So these issues are being compounded by the fact that we don't have people there. So really colleges probably need to be taking positive steps to actually um, appoint uh, disabled people onto these committees uh, mm -hmm. to, in order to support that process to ensure that voice is represented. So I think that probably could be a, another step. Uh, funding, of course, is an issue uh, that the in terms of and, and I think Shelley, you know a little bit about this um, students. Um, in my research actually found barriers to their wider civic engagement, so like volunteering and, as you know, uh, civic engagement is a high priority and a part of most colleges strategies now and it mm -hmm. as to be a. Uh, to in order to develop all the key graduate attributes that you're expected to. You are expected also to engage in that wider civic engagement and that volunteering uh, aspect. Uh, and for some disabled students, that's not an option mm -hmm. because uh, once you finish class, there may not be the supports to engage in that. And as a result, you don't have that skill on your CV. Mm -hmm. You don't get, uh, obtain that graduate attribute. Um, and so there were, there were 
examples of senior managers themselves, that's registrars and vice presidents, actually advocating themselves on behalf of disabled students to ensure that funding was found somewhere in order to enable that student to participate. And that, you know, that story sounds great, but that's not a structure. Mm -hmm. That's it's not a person. way of doing it. Yeah. That's one yeah. person. Mm -hmm. um, so I, I think there is a piece of work around that that needs to be done to ensure that we actually say, yes, uh, social engagement and civic engagement is important for all students. As a result, we are prepared to fund that and fund those supports where necessary. In some cases, supports are not necessary, but but there are for a, for a number of students. Um, now, there is a view that, there was a view shared that, well, that should be up to voluntary organizations. But as you know, some voluntary organizations don't have the resources to do that. Right. Um, but so just, the wider discussion that needs to be had about that. And we have to ask ourselves in higher education, well, how much do we value that? Mm -hmm. And do we value it equally for all students? Mm -hmm. And if it's a principle, and if it's, you know, one of the, the, you know, defining principles of your strategic plan, if you're a university, um, and it's one of the, you know, defining principles there, uh, then, you know, my opinion would be that it would be the responsibility of the university then to make that available, um, you know, for the for students to be able to volunteer. And again, that, you know, that's kind of a story maybe for another day, but um, it definitely, um, you know, is an important, it certainly isn't you know, the, vo the volunteer organization's responsibility. And, and if it is something that the strategic plan states that the university says, these are the types of graduates that we, the graduate attributes that we want to our, our graduates to have when they leave the university, you know, that they're civically engaged, um, then they should, you know, make sure that the structures are in place, um, you know, to, to take care of that for all students. Because, it, you know, like you said before, it's everybody's business and, you know, in this, this really matters. So, it, you know, you can't just say only some students, you know, can be civically engaged because they're able-bodied. Yeah, and I, I think, Shelley, uh, that uh, I'm sure you would have, uh, I mean, met uh, disabled students uh, who may have or may not have been able to engage during mm -hmm. your own research. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Um, you know, those who and and it's not even always just um, um, who may or may not haven't been able to engage, but the, you know, we also have to think about those whose engagement is diminished. Um, because, you know, maybe they, you know, they try to engage or they, they do engage in some in some capacity, but they don't have the the ability to fully engage, because the structures aren't there. For absolutely. Them. That's absolutely yeah. right. And uh, so and, and I think, what that comes down to then is that we really need uh, colleges need to really implement, and I think nationally we need to implement uh, that uh, strategy uh, and policy around that. And we cannot be just leaving it up to one very interested individual because mm -hmm. that is not a, a that's not a platform or a, a strategy for success into the future. Mm -hmm. uh, and so. I feel that at a policy level that we need to really actually embed this now into and we we very shortly we will have a new national plan for equity of access. Uh, I believe that it's now 
time to move on to actually widening out uh, that social experience for disabled students and to look at those aspects like social engagement, civic engagement, uh, leadership uh, and the, the wider experience. And I think if we included it in our national plan, I think it would be very useful and it would really give give colleges some support as well uh, because one of the things is that I would say is that there really was an interest and willingness to do something by senior managers and disability support personnel and particularly by the students unions but they often didn't know what to do mm -hmm. and so I think uh, that we need to give guidance at a national level now as to what needs to be done. Yeah absolutely. Um, well Vivian, we're now at the point in our conversation when I like to ask my, my guests, um, my guest speakers, to share some resources, some links or book recommendations that, that you think would be helpful for anybody that's interested in finding out more about Student Voice or how they can help. Yeah, well, um, I, I was actually just on an, uh, and I think it's important in relation to the topic, is around universal design for learning and universal design. Uh, and I was actually reading up recently on Katie Novak and Kathleen Turner. Uh, and uh, that I think they, they, in terms of universal design, I'd highly recommend uh, that they look at some of that work, especially now uh, in terms of, and I'm thinking of blended learning. And I think it's important during this uh, time of transition uh, into the blended learning environment, especially an environment where uh, that we're going to have maybe some students in class and some students online at the same time um, uh, concurrently. And so I think that how do we, we need to start asking ourselves the question, how do we ensure, ensure equity of uh, voice in that environment? Mm -hmm. uh, and so in terms of that, I think that might be useful uh, reading for people around universal design for learning. Uh, I think as well, ahead.ie have some great resources uh, that uh, which would be which would be useful. Uh, I'm uh, read a lot um, uh, on, on follow Twitter, of course, and I think mm -hmm. you can really get some great updates on that. And of course, then I think it's useful to listen to, to your podcast, Shelley. Thank <laughs> you. <laughs> and I will make sure that um, the the links to like. Um, uh, ahead are put into the descriptor for your particular episode here, uh, as well as, you know, if you want, I can put your Twitter handle in. Um, and if there, you know, we have any discussion about some other Twitter handles um, or hashtags that they could follow or things like that, I can make sure to put them into the descriptor um, as well. Um, so Vivian, any final words of wisdom before we say adieu? I think uh, one of the most important things that people can remember uh, or think about is the motto of the independent living movement, which is nothing about us without us. So when you're yeah. planning your next committee, just have a little look around the room and ask yourself who's not in the room. And then think of that, nothing about us without us and start including disabled people. 
That, that is actually wonderful parting advice and wonderful words of wisdom for us. So thank you so, so much for, you know, taking the time. Um, again, I, you know, I know that you're, that you're quite busy um, with everything that you have going on and especially, you know, in the process of dis really disseminating widely this very important research. And so thank you for taking the time um, to spend with me and with our listeners to talk about this important topic, Vivian. Thank you. Thank you, Shelley. that you've enjoyed this discussion on A Dash of Salt, a space where you'll always find fresh and current discussions on society and learning today, seasoned with just the right touch of experts in education and a dash of sociological imagination. Please be sure to like and share this episode, and don't forget to subscribe to A Dash of Salt on Podbean so that you don't miss the next episode. Thanks so much, and we'll chat again soon.